great worship today, gang, and as our uh, other campuses and venues join us for our time in the Word, we trust you guys had a, a powerful and great time of worship as well. As uh, some of you know, I've been gone for the last couple of weeks. I do that a couple of times a year. I go away specifically for some study to prepare for the uh, year ahead, essentially. And uh, I got a lot done. I got the whole year mapped out uh, for the preaching calendar, and I studied a a particular book in the Bible that I'll be uh, sharing here uh, in the next few months and where we're going to be going in the Word that I'm very, very excited about. So, For those of you who prayed, thank you for uh, your prayers for me, and thanks for the opportunity to do this. I think we're all going to benefit from that. Now, as many of you know, before I left a couple of weeks ago, uh, I did a a one-off sermon, a a one message that kind of talked about where we are as a church with this idea of better together. That is, we've done this major merger with Northridge Community Church, now Scottsdale Bible Northridge. Uh, You know, we said we, we had some resourcing needs, and there's a lot that God's doing in our church. And, and, and you might remember too, I shared with you that I did not want to do a capital campaign. I, I, I mean, partly is I just don't want to distract us right now from what we're doing as a church. I want to keep us focused, but we did have some resourcing needs for our new campus and also for our Cactus campus. And, and I shared with you a few weeks ago that some people had generously seeded this uh, need that we have. Some of our financial leaders had given generously toward our goal. And then I shared with the rest of you that we need you to also pray about what you would do. And so I want to share with you, based on one sermon and and you guys just praying that week as a body of Christ, I want to share with you where we are right now, because it's really, really good news. If you look up here on the screen, our goal was $7.3 million. Total to date pledges is $6.7 million. Yeah, you can clap at that. So we are less than 10% shy of our goal, about $600,000. Now, get the camera back on me, because I want to talk to you guys about this, all right? So here's the deal. When we did our Compelled by Grace campaign back five years ago, it was the largest church-based capital campaign since the recession that I knew about. I'm pretty sure that's factual. That was a major campaign that we redid our sanctuary here. We planted the Cactus Campus. We did a bunch of other things. And, and that was a major campaign. And out of 3,500 families that regularly participate in resourcing this church, we had about two-thirds participation participation in Compelled by Grace. So about 2,200 families participated regularly in that. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal success. Here's why that's important. This time around, we've had about one-third of our families, actually a little bit less than that, about 1,000 families participate in this, and we're almost to our goal. And so some of you function this way, and I love you for it because I know how you are. You kind of sit on the sidelines. You go, I don't know if they really need me on this one. until you kind of see where the dust settles. And here's what you need to know. The dust has settled and we need you on this one. So if you have been, you know, kind of just saying, well, I'm going to see if God needs me. He does. So there's still time to pledge. Uh, If you're not one of those families that has participated, you can get a pledge card out at the Welcome Center or at the other campuses and venues. Better yet, just go online, discussthebible.com, better together. And uh, I think we can easily reach our goal. This is an amazing start. God, 
God is good. And again, as I always do, I thank you for your generosity uh, because we don't talk about this stuff very often around here at all. And I think we're able to knock this one out in short order and then move on. And, and so here's where we're moving on. We're in a series right now in John chapter 16. Now, if you're just joining us in, the, in our church recently, and this might be almost embarrassing, we've been in the gospel of John on and off for five years. I didn't know it was that long until I was on my study break. And I go, exactly how, when do we start with John 1? It was five years ago. And I said, we're going to make our way slowly through this book with some stops and starts. I didn't think it would be this slow. So I have made the determination that by the end of next year, we're going to finish up this book. <laughs> I didn't think it was that funny. It could go on and on. So... <laughs> By the end of next year, but but part of what I am doing in this is I as I as I'm sick and tired of being rushed in in how churches do book studies, right? Like you know, you say we're going to do the Gospel of Mark in five weeks. Come on, you know, I mean, you don't do it that way. So we have taken our time, and we're we're basically spending four or five weeks in each chapter. We've spent almost sixty weeks total in the Gospel of John so far, and we're in a series right now out of John sixteen that we've entitled "He Walks with Me." You know, we always talk about how how we walk with God, did you also realize he walks with you? And that he has certain commitments as he walks with you, things that he wants to do and be in your life. That's what Jesus, our Savior, is walking us through in this chapter. Rustin did a bang-up job of kicking it off last week, and we're going to see that Jesus now takes us into the realm of the Holy Spirit this week. So I, I do this quite often. It's the tradition I grew up in. Whenever we read the scriptures, I'd like you guys to stand. So why doesn't everybody stand right now before I pray? And we're going to read the portion of scripture for today. It's just respectful to do this. So uh, campuses and venues, thank you for doing that. I'm going to read John 16, verses 5 through 11. Jesus is speaking. All these words are from him. Let's dial into what he is saying. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said things, these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, because if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you no longer will behold me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Why don't you guys bow with me and let's pray. Father, uh, we've read your word. We now want to talk intelligently and passionately about it. So I pray that as we do that, that your Holy Spirit, whom this passage is talking about, would inhabit the words that we're about, that I'm about to talk. And I pray, Father, that things that I say that are commensurate with your truth would sink in with these dear people. And the things that I say that are not commensurate with your truth, that they would fall on deaf ears. And change us within as we grapple with your word now, I pray in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. Well, you can be seated. Uh, so I want to ask you a very, very important question. In fact, it's probably the $10 question anybody could ever ask you when it comes to your relationship with God. And it's this one, that in the last week or so, or maybe even going back a month if you want to be generous about it, has there been a time where you did something wrong and felt true guilt? Just answer it to yourself, yes or no. 
And before you answer too quickly, notice the words that I'm using, true guilt. I'm not talking about unfair fair guilt, you know, the kind of guilt imposed on you by a boss or a well-meaning spouse or a friend, you know, where they think you should feel guilty about something, but you don't. And so they verbally badger you till you cave in with some sort of half-hearted admission. That's unfair guilt. I'm not talking about that. And I'm also not talking about shame-based guilt that you have left over from your childhood where you feel bad about who you are as a person. And that's kind of bled into how you feel about yourself as an adult. We'll get to that one later. No, not shame-based guilt. I'm talking about true guilt. The mere fact that you did something wrong. You transgressed your own values. You fibbed, you cursed, you fudged on your taxes. You thought something that was not very nice, might have even said it. You screwed up and you feel bad about it. You feel guilty. I'm simply asking you, do you ever have a pattern in your soul where you do something wrong and you feel guilty about it, yes or no? And if you answer yes to that, I have really good news for you, and that is that your conscience and your spiritual life, at least in this area, are working just fine. Because what we're going to see today is that guilt, contrary to what many people think today, is not a bad thing. I mean, it's not a great feeling when we have it, but the Bible's gonna tell us today that it's actually a very good thing, that God has hardwired us to feel healthy guilt, and he's even willing to help us along when our stubborn consciences aren't cooperating very well. Now, to see what I mean here, I want us to notice a few things that Jesus is making clear here in this passage that we read earlier, because this is all about guilt. I call it conviction, but it's really about guilt that Jesus is talking about here. So notice the first thing that Jesus tells us, and this is crucial. He says, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict us, not our job. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict Uh, not ours. Let's get our context right in this passage here. The disciples are obviously bummed in John chapter 16. And they're bummed because Jesus has spent three years with them. And now they sense, because he's been telling them about this, that he is going to go away. He's talked about a cross and rising from the dead and ascending back up into heaven. And they don't really get what all of that is about, but they know that their friend and their spiritual leader is leaving them. And so he tells them here in John 16, you guys caught this, that it is good that he is going to go away. It's good that he's going to the cross and then back to the Father, because when he does, he's going to send them a helper, the Holy Spirit, who's going to do and be a lot of things for them. In fact, I'll just fast track this for you right now. The Holy Spirit is the one who is going to make Jesus real to them when he ascends into heaven. He's going to make Jesus real to us by walking with us in our spiritual life. That's why we call this series, He Walks With Me. And one of the key things that the Holy Spirit will do encompasses this whole reality of healthy guilt. I want you to look again at verse eight and you'll see what I mean. Jesus says, and he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, here it is, will convict the world. He will convict the world. Now, notice a couple of things in that very potent three-word phrase, convict the world. First, notice that he, the Holy Spirit, 
will convict. Now, that word world here is the Greek word cosmos, where we get our English word cosmology out of. It means the entire universe. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the Holy Spirit's job is to convict every single person on planet Earth, anybody and everybody made in the image of God, believer or not, follower or not, spiritual or not, religious or not, it doesn't matter because we're all made in the image of God and we all have consciences and the Holy Spirit's job is to help our conscience work right and when we mess up to convict us of our wrongdoing. That's what Jesus is saying here. And what's really fascinating is that when you read the entire Bible, you realize that this is the only occurrence in all of the Bible where it links the Holy Spirit with the entire world. Isn't that interesting? The Holy Spirit's mentioned a lot, but the Spirit's almost always mentioned in light of God's followers, the believers, the saved. Here, the the Holy Spirit's mentioned in light of the whole world, and it tells us that the Spirit's primary job in light of the whole world is to convict. He will convict. And as you're chewing on that, notice with me a second key thing that Jesus is laying out here in these three little words, and that is that he will convict the world. He will convict In other words, as I already said, it's the Spirit's job to help people's consciences work right so that when they do wrong, they're going to feel that pang of guilt about what they did. And here's the purpose of it, to realize their need for God's grace and his forgiveness and his mercy and his involvement in their lives. It's actually a really rich word. That word convict in the original language of the New Testament was written and carries with it a threefold idea. You're going to like this to examine, expose, and rebuke. <laughs> examine, expose, and rebuke. So here's what the Spirit does. When Jamie Rasmussen messes up, say I'm driving down the freeway, somebody cuts me off, I think not a flowery thought, the Spirit immediately says, you know what, I'm examining you right now. That's not a really good thing that you thought right there. In fact, put that finger down. You shouldn't be doing that right now. I don't actually do that. It's thumbs up always. So I, uh, and the spirit examines me. And then the spirit exposes that and says, man, you know what? You got to chill out today. I mean, your attitude is poor. I mean, what's bothering you? And before you know it, the spirit's examining what's going on inside of me. And then all along, and we'll talk about how this works here more in a minute, but the spirit is gently rebuking me saying, what you're doing is not right. It's not cool. It's not who I made you to be. He will convict. And again, I can't say strong enough that the obvious purpose of this is to get us to see our need for God and the redemption, the forgiveness that's offered to us in Jesus to see our need for the Lord. And this is a loving thing that God does. Guilt has gotten a bad rap today. People tend to think that guilt is a joy killer, that it's a party killer. You know, God's here to rain on our parade. Not at all. God is here to tell you he loves you and he wants you to draw him to yourself, but your sin gets in the way, amen? And so when your sin gets in the way, God loves you enough to do something about it. And that's where guilt comes in. He makes you feel guilty or allows you to feel guilty so that you can come to a restored relationship with him. The Old Testament predicted this a thousand years before the time of Jesus. Look at Proverbs 3.12. It says, for whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. 
So what good parent wouldn't ever correct their child? What good parent wouldn't ever have little Johnny or Susie feel guilty when they do something really nasty or mean? Of course a parent would allow a kid to feel that. Why? Because the parent loves them. And this doesn't mean that people will always respond to the Spirit's conviction here. We still have a choice to ignore or to reject it, as many people do, and as many of us do at times. But nevertheless, what we need to see at this point, because this is really important, is that the Spirit's job with the world and with us is to convict us when we sin. And so once we get this, that he will convict I only have one question for you before we move on, but it's a really important question because Christians just, they, well, they annoy me. So here's the question. If this is the Holy Spirit's role in our lives, as well as in the lives of all those around us, the world, the cosmos, then tell me, why is it that so many Christians feel the need to play the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those around them? Have you ever noticed that? Why do so many Christians feel the need to help the Spirit along here and constantly badger people about their sin? We are not known as joyful people. We, we are known as judgmental and always pointing out other people's flaws and kind of standing in judgment of them. Here's what you need to know today, Christian. This is going to free you up. The Holy Spirit doesn't want your help. The Holy Spirit doesn't need your help. You can clap at that. And for those of you who aren't clapping, you should. <laughs> you see, the Holy Spirit is the one who is to convict. And I scoured this passage and other ones of them this week. Nowhere does Jesus ever say, and by the way, he'd like your help in the process. In fact, many times, as you guys know, we tend to get in the way. It's the Spirit's job, really his only job in light of the world. There's no mention that we need to help him along. Let him do his job. This story might help. I, I love this story. It's actually a true story I found in my I research recently uh, that appeared on a reputable news site a, a couple of years ago. It's about a family that lives in Pennsylvania, a couple. They think they're empty nesters. And uh, one day, Jerry, the head of this family, was uh, doing a, a DIY project in his house. He was trying to put a, a television wire inside the wall in his living room. And, and he needed to try to figure out exactly where to, to put it, where the hole needed to go and all that. So he went upstairs to the second floor of his house. And he had an ingenious idea. He, he decided he wanted to drop something down into the vent there to try to gauge exactly exactly where to put the hole. And so he took his wife's digital alarm clock and, and, and he tied a string to it, set it to go off 10 minutes in the future, and he dropped it down the vent. And he tied it off, and sure enough, 10 minutes later, it went off, and, and it worked. He was able to gauge exactly where to put the, the, the hole for this uh, television wire he was putting in. And after he gauged where to put the hole, he went back upstairs and he started to pull the uh, clock back up and it got stuck. And, and so he pulled a little bit harder and you guess what happened? The string broke and the clock fell down into the wall. And so when his wife came home, he told her what had happened and she said, well, we'll just have to get a new alarm clock. And, and so they forgot about it. And yet the very next night <laughs> at exactly 6.50 p.m., they were having dinner and all of a sudden the alarm clock went off in the wall. And it was one of these alarm clocks that only goes off for about a minute, but it gets louder as it keeps beeping. So it was beeping louder and louder and they were kind of laughing. It finally went off. 
And for the next couple of weeks, every night at 6.50 p.m., this alarm clock went off, and they basically assumed that after a month or two, the battery would die. For 13 years, that alarm clock went off. True story, 13 years. Every night at 6.50 p.m., 7.50 p.m. during daylight savings time, the alarm clock went off and beep loud. Friends would come over and they'd say, wait for it, wait for it. And, and they just kind of got used to it in their lives. Now, why is that an important illustration? I, I think it's a great illustration. I'm going to tell you why. This is how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. When you and I mess up, maybe think of it this way. He gives us a beep. He pricks our conscience, he examines, exposes, and rebukes. Like an alarm clock going off in our heads, the spirit goes off in our conscience and tries to get us to realize something is going on behind the wall of our denial. That's the Holy Spirit. And here's the deal. If we choose to ignore the beep and think that it will eventually go away, what's the spirit going to do? He's going to keep on beeping. For 13 years, for 30 years, for 60 years, for 90 years. And here's the point, Christian. You're not the beep. The Holy Spirit is the beep. And some of you are bothered by the fact that your kid, your grandkid, your neighbor, your friend, whoever it is in your life that doesn't seem to be getting it with God. You kind of want to help the process along. Just get out of the way. The Holy Spirit is here to convict the world in regards to their sin lack of righteousness, and the judgment to come. Harsh words, which we'll get to in a minute. And you're not the spirit. Like an alarm clock going off in the wall that's going to go off for years on end. The beep is going on. Let God do his work. Now, as I say quite often, we're just ramping up here because there is more to this idea of the spirit and guilt, much more. And so let's notice a second key thing that Jesus teaches us here. And this is gonna be hard for some of you to swallow, but just hang with me here, because this is good stuff. And that is that it is a good conviction that the spirit gives, full on guilt with no shame. It is a good conviction, full on guilt with no shame. Now, I know this sounds kind of intense and ominous, full on guilt, but let's allow Jesus to guide us here on what is going on with the spirits convicting. So let's look one last time at our passage here and notice what Jesus says this time in verses eight through 11. He says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he explains, concerning sin because they, the world, do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I almost called this in point two, trifecta guilt. Because people like to hit a trifecta. And if you're actually listening to the Spirit and the three ways the Spirit convicts us, it actually is a trifecta guilt. But let's call it full-on guilt. Because notice what is going on here. Jesus says that the Spirit convicts us and the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he explains, and this is rich, he says that the Spirit convicts us concerning sin because we do not believe in Jesus. Did you know that the root of sin, the thing that God is most concerned about in your life when it comes to how and where you mess up, 
is when we fail to believe in and trust in Jesus. It's really true. Many people think the biggest thing God is concerned about now is the definition of marriage or, or, or abortion or all the other things going on in our culture. God is concerned about those things. But see, here's what God knows. If he can get people on his side, if he can get people to embrace and believe in his son Jesus and follow them and truly come home to, to him, then all the other stuff is going to start to fall into place. Have you ever noticed that? So the number one thing God is concerned about in your neighbor's life, in your life, is to the degree that we believe in and trust in Jesus. And that's the root of sin, is that lack of faith, that lack of trust, that lack of personal relationship. So the first thing the Spirit will convict us of is what we are doing or not doing with Jesus. And then notice that Jesus says, and then he'll convict us of our righteousness or lack of. And it's interesting, the words that are used here, Jesus says concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me or see me. What was he talking about there? This is actually really cool stuff. What Jesus is essentially saying here is that as he goes to the cross, as he goes then to his resurrection, as he ascends to the Father and we don't see him anymore, what's he doing? He's following the Father's will and living a perfectly obedient life. And Jesus then becomes our standard for what righteousness and obedience and a life well lived looks like. That's why you've heard the phrase that we need to become more Christ-like in our lives. And yet the difficulty is, is that Jesus lived a perfectly obedient and perfect life. And so it reveals our lack of righteousness when we match ourselves up against Jesus. And the Spirit convicts us of that lest we get too prideful. I remember years ago, I was watching Jay Leno. That dates me for some of you. Jay Leno, for you younger people, was a talk show host that followed Johnny Carson. You don't know who he is either, but Jay Leno was a guy before Jimmy Kimmel and, and, and those guys. And, and Jay Leno was doing a stand-up routine one night, and I, I couldn't believe he made this joke because it was so spiritually insightful and yet so funny. He, he just said out of the blue, he said, can you imagine being Jesus's brother and having your mother look at you and say, why can't you be more like your brother? Jesus. <laughs> and then Leno said, you know, to the crowd, he said, well, he's the son of God, mom. You know, I mean, it's hard to match up to that. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's preaching the gospel right there on the Tonight Show. But you see, Leno's spot on. When you start to understand who Jesus is as the incarnate son of God, living a perfectly obedient life in front of us, he becomes our standard of what life is supposed to be. And again, there's no shame in this. We'll get to that in a minute here. But there is guilt there when we realize, because some of us are so prideful about how good we think we are. Just match yourself up against Jesus because you're not quite as good as you think you are. And God wants you to realize that, to see your need for him. And then very quickly, he convicts us of judgment. Judgment to come. Again, it makes sense now. We sin because we don't have as much faith as we need to. We, we don't match up to the righteous life God wants us to have. And then there's judgment. And yet the ruler of this world, Satan himself, has been judged on the cross. And if Satan's going to be judged, then certainly we will. So add all this up. The Spirit convicts us of our sin, of unbelief, and not trusting when we should. He convicts us of not being the righteous, Jesus-like followers that we should. And then he convicts us of the judgment we incur because of all of this. That's why I call it full-on guilt. And yet realize this as well, and I keep saying this, gang. Because this comes from God's Holy Spirit, 
It is a healthy guilt. It has to be. And it's only given to drive you back to God, to drive you to the one who loves you and wants you to be in right relationship with him. It's a good thing when the Spirit does this. And maybe this analogy will help. All of you have heard the analogy of the kid with his, his or her hand caught in the cookie jar, right? So, you know, the, the kid knows dinner is coming, but, but he wants a cookie now. And so he, he tries to steal a cookie when mom or dad is not looking. And what does a good parent do when the kid has his hand in the cookie jar? Let's go through the options. Does a good parent take out a saw and cut the hand off, yes or no? That would be overkill. That would be a terrible thing. Does a good parent shame the kid and say, don't ever eat cookies again, go to your room? No, a parent doesn't do that either. No, a good parent would basically say, hey, Johnny, get your hand out of the cookie jar. And if Johnny doesn't, a good parent might give a nice little whack on the hand, just a soft one to say, get your hand out of that cookie jar. And though Johnny's mad at that moment, because mom and dad just rained on his parade, someday they might realize that the reason mom or dad did that, now watch this, is because a good meal is just around the corner. And a good parent knows that that good meal is a much better meal than that cookie right now. That cookie's made for dessert, but the real meal is coming in just an hour or two. And my question for you is, could God be the same way? Could God sometimes come along and through his Holy Spirit make you feel guilty about something in your life? And you're like, I don't want to feel that right now. But he knows that right now you don't need that cookie. What you need right now is a good meal that is just around the corner. In other words, the guilt is given there. It's a good thing to help you live the life God wants you to live. You see, the Bible affirms this. Romans 2 verse 4 says it this way. It says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Not the anger of God, not the punishment of God, it's kindness. So when he convicts us, it's his kindness. Or how about this one in Ephesians 5? It says, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is all life-giving stuff, but it begins and comes with conviction. Now, I want to address something that I mentioned in point two here and that I hinted to earlier that I think is extremely important for many of us to wrestle with right now. And that's the difference between what I, and I believe the Bible affirms this, calls the difference between guilt and what we're going to call shame. Guilt and shame. Because many of you, Cactus Venue, Chapel Northridge, many of you can confuse what guilt and shame are And it keeps you distant from God. So let me explain. Guilt, as we have seen, basically says you have done some seriously wrong things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. But hey, respond to the Spirit because mercy, forgiveness, grace, redemption can easily be found. Why? Because God loves you and welcomes all prodigals back. That's the way his economy works. Shame works like this. Shame says you are a very, very bad person. You are unredeemable. There's really no hope for you. You can never change. You're just a complete mess up and you might as well just get on with your life. Do you understand the difference? And the sad thing is, is that we live in a world today in which through parenting and through dysfunctional communities, through really messed up marriages, 
There's a lot of shame that is both spoken and even worse, unspoken, but it's there. You and I have both been in relationships where at times you can tell that other person doesn't really love you, doesn't really believe in you. In fact, they wish you'd just kind of disappear. And what does that produce in you? What is, how does that make you feel? It makes you feel shame. Because it's that kind of relationship, that kind of feeling that basically says, you're just a massive screw up. And when are you going to stop screwing up? Because I don't think you can. And, and the connotation is you're, you're kind of unredeemable. And many children exist in families like this. The parents don't necessarily always mean to do that, but they have a shame base themselves. And they pass that on to their kids. Uh, one of the kids in my extended family, not in mine, but on my, my wife's side and through the extended family, uh, the father would regularly say of him, and everybody used to laugh at it, but he'd regularly say of him, he ain't right. He ain't right. And he'd say to family functions and other things, and people would kind of laugh, but kind of the message was, he's just a big screw up. And as I've observed my friend's life as a result of that, he carries a residue of shame in his adult world now. And he's a strong follower of Jesus, but his daily battle is that tape that says he ain't right. Now, why is all that important? Because this isn't just psychological mumbo jumbo. The reason that's important, and the Bible makes this distinction, is because when you live from a shame base, as many of us have and at times do, it's difficult sometimes to distinguish between the shame we feel and the guilt that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. And it's maturity in your walk with God to learn to make a distinction between the two. Don't confuse the guilt the Spirit gives you with the shame that's in you that God also wants you to work through because that shame is not the same as the guilt. Does that make sense? The Bible would put it this way. It's very straightforward here. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. It says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Isn't that interesting? I think this is talking about good guilt and human shame. And the fact that God, when he convicts us of sin, it's a good thing that leads to repentance and salvation and leaves no regret. But if you allow that shame to rule your life, that worldly sorrow that doesn't come from God, it comes from the things of the world, your upbringing, your bad marriage, all the things that you've gone through, that just leads to death and you know that. And part of maturity is to make that distinction between, sin, uh, between guilt and shame. And one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about this, and I gotta be careful how I share this, is that I've been a Christian now for almost 40 years, and I can tell you guys, so much of my Christianity was shame-based early on. And even now, I still struggle with it. I don't wanna get into parent blaming and things like that, but, but you know, I, I grew up in a family in which I wasn't close with my dad for a lot of different reasons. Part of it was he grew up in the Great Depression. He's a product of World War II. His dad died when he was seven. And my dad's just a tough old guy. And so when I was growing up, you know, I'd never got any, you know, attaboys or I love you or even any hugs. I mean, he was just a lawyer across the desk and, and, you know, sort of just said, make something of yourself, kid. And he gave me resources and what have you to do it. But, but as a result of that and many, many other things, I was also very small as a kid in high school. I was really, really small. And so I felt terrible about my body. All these things combined together. I entered adulthood, even after I got saved, with a lot of shame in my life. And the reason that's important is that every time somebody would show disapproval to me, every time my wife would get mad at me, 
Every time I'd mess up at church, I didn't just feel healthy guilt. No, I'd play a mental game in which I'd say this to myself, and many of you can relate to this. When are you gonna finally get it right? When are you gonna stop messing up? Man, you are no good. You are such a fake. If people only knew. I mean, God's putting up with you and maybe you'll get into heaven, but you're never gonna be what you hope to be. I'm telling you, as a young minister, I played those tapes regularly in my head and it took some counseling. It took an amazing wife. It took a healthy church and a good community of faith for me to finally start to distinguish between those voices that were from shame and the voices of good guilt that God wanted to do in my life to make me the better man that I am becoming. And though I've grown tremendously in the last almost 40 years, I'm telling you, it takes a long time. Somebody once said it to me this way. He said, it took you 20 years to get messed up. Don't expect change overnight. And so though I have changed in 40 years, would it surprise you that I still struggle with this, yes or no? I'm telling you, I can sometimes be undone in my week with a nasty email. I mean, I can get 19 emails saying, man, great sermon, way to go, you really ministered to me. Love that distinction between guilt and shame, and that was really helpful and all that. And, and then I just get one email of somebody that's just ticked off at life and wants to spew it all at me. And I know I shouldn't take it personal, but it is at me, and, and my whole day is ruined. And I think to myself, when am I gonna grow up? <laughs> when am I gonna stop allowing that? But I realize where it comes from now. It's really not that person's problem, is it? I mean, people are going to be mean and nasty at times. That's just life. Now, I learned years ago, this is my problem. This is me giving them control from my shame base. Does this make any sense? That I don't need to do anymore in my life. And though I'm still working at it, I've gotten a lot better than I used to be. And so if this relates at all to you, and I think it does for some of you, maybe the one thing you take out of our time today is to deal with that distinction between guilt that God wants to do in your life. He walks with you and the spirit is going to convict you at time. But don't confuse that with shame. And one last word on shame. This is huge. Years ago in the 80s, when I was uh, starting to discover my own shame, I read a book. It was a secular book on shame. And this author said, shame can't stand to be spoken. And I first didn't understand that. But what he was basically saying was, because most of us, when we feel shame, don't want to tell anybody about it. In fact, last night when I talked on shame here and shared about my own life, I felt shame about talking about shame on the way home from church. And, and, and so it really is an exposing thing to do. But, but this was John Bradshaw in his book on shame that said this. He said, shame can't stand to be spoken. Find a few safe people and take a risk and start to speak your shame to them. And he said, what you'll find is that it starts to lose its power. It starts to dissipate. Could this be what the Bible means when it says to get in community and just start to confess your sins and share your life with each other? I, I think that's what it means. I do that now on a regular basis with a group of men, with my wife, with other people, and it really does work. Make that distinction between guilt and shame. Because you see, this leads us to the third and final thing about guilt and conviction. And this is a good wrap-up. We've been noting it all along, but please hear this if nothing else. And that is that God's goal in all of this is to lead people to Jesus. That's it. Man, if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. That God loves you. And if he convicts you of your sin, and he will, because he loves you, 
He only does this because he wants you closer to him. And he realized that, again, like the kid with his hand in the cookie jar, that's getting in the way of the good dinner. And he wants you at his table, and he wants to lead you deeper to himself. And so when you mess up this week, and you probably will, and when and if the Spirit convicts you, and I hope he does, listen to his voice. 1 John 1 9, your sin. Do you guys know 1 John 1 9? It says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if the Spirit convicts you this week, just say this back to God. You're right, God. I agree with you. I shouldn't have done that. Doggone it. I did it again. But thank you that you love me. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers over my sin. I'm trusting in him. Keep convicting me, God, because I want to be closer to you. This will be healthy for your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, you know I spent the last two weeks immersed for eight hours a day in your word, and it was glory. And I thank you that we've had a little taste of that here today. And I pray, God, that as we each chew on these things for our own lives, this idea of conviction and the Holy Spirit's job and not ours and what full-on guilt means and the lack of shame in that, allowing ourselves to make that distinction, God, I pray that you would continue to walk with us and draw us closer to yourself. God, thank you for Jesus and all that he is to us. Thank you for the spirit that makes Jesus real. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.